0: Thanks for being with us. Well, as you likely know, Sam Cooper with Global News has been covering money laundering uh, stories. He's been breaking a lot of stories on that front. And there will be a, a new story posted to our website this morning as well. And this one is taking a look at prosecutions and the fact that Canada fails to successfully prosecute about 70% of money laundering cases in this country. And this is, as we know, calls are mounting for a public inquiry into organized crime and money laundering right here in BC. Uh, a global news analysis reveals that provinces right across the country largely fail to successfully tackle financial crimes and again, about three quarters of people who are implicated well, nothing actually happens. And the numbers are being taken from the years 2000 to 2016. In that time period, Canada recorded 321 guilty verdicts in single charge money laundering cases and that's according to data provided by Statistics Canada. Another rough roughly 809 cases were either stayed, withdrawn or dismissed, according to that data, resulting in a conviction rate of about 27%. And Statistics Canada figures for 2017 find that 63% of all adult criminal court cases results in a guilty verdict. So let's bring in Matt McGuire. He is a forensic accountant. He previously worked with FinTrack. FinTrack is the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada. And Matt McGuire is on the line with us. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Morning, Joe. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, what is your uh, reaction to some of those numbers and to what we see as far as money laundering cases and charges across the country and uh, that type of success rate when it comes to prosecution? Well,
1: it's, it's incredibly disappointing, um, but predictable. Disappointing because banks across the country, FinTrack, uh, real estate agents and brokers that we're all putting together a lot of intelligence and feeding a lot of intelligence on money laundering, um, and and the outcomes just aren't there. We're not putting the right number of people in jail. We're not seizing and um, and forfeiting the right amount of money.
0: And and where where does it break down though? Do you think?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, we've got great intelligence coming from the banks. Great intelligence coming from Fintrack. Great intelligence going to law enforcement. This is where we have the problem. There isn't the money, the resources, the time to be able to prosecute these uh, offenses properly.
0: Uh, Sam Cooper, again, who's been following this, uh, has been uh, tweeting out about this, and certainly he's been filing so many stories on this. Uh, he, he's saying looking at, especially specifically in BC, looking at BC's casino review, and he said, he points out, he says, something that's important for people to understand is the reviewer concluded that casinos were unwitting to the money laundering, but chose not to interview the executive insiders, and in this particular case, he's talking about a Chinese VIP program, the center of the model. Uh, if, we, if we take from that that we find that casinos were unwitting uh, to this, so what do you take from that? Because it seems to go against much of, of what we've already heard or what we've seen as far as how casinos are involved in this.
1: It, it, it's impossible to conclude that the BC casinos were, were not didn't know that, that money laundering was going on. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars in cash uh, entering into these casinos. It was known and it was reported. Um, where it breaks down is, is, is in the province of BC over that period you talked about from 2000 to 2016, There were only, or there were less than 50 charges of money laundering, 50 charges over that 15 year period. So, where things are breaking down is a communication and the prosecution between FinTrack, law enforcement, uh, and then adjudication.
0: Is it also a case of government officials turning a blind eye?
1: Uh, Insofar as there isn't resourcing to law enforcement. We're, what we're doing is we're meeting the letter of the international standards and not implementing and looking for outcomes. We need to be detaining the money so that crime isn't profitable, and we need to be
0: putting those people in jail. So it sounds like the, the information is there, because I think one of the other questions about this has been, do we need more whistleblowers coming forward? Do we need more people coming forward and saying, yes, this is happening, I've seen this, uh, this is illegal, this is criminal activity. Uh, do we need more people doing that, or we already have that information?
1: Well, whistleblowing is great, but there is. I mean, FinTrack is receiving 20 million reports a year, um, both of large cash transactions, large international wires, suspicious transactions. All the intelligence is there. Where it breaks down is that we don't have dedicated law enforcement. We don't have dedicated prosecution. And as a consequence, you know, of the 60 billion that's laundered through Canada every year, we're only detaining 60 million of it.
0: Which is, I mean, they're mind boggling numbers.
1: It really is. As a country, we're spending hundreds of millions a year on this initiative, uh, uh, tons of money, and we're telling to, it's like putting a fire hose into a garden hose. We're spending a ton on intelligence. We're feeding it through and giving it no means um, to achieve what it's supposed to, which is putting people in prison and detaining the funds.
0: And so, why do you think that there is that disconnect? In that the the this the work is being done, like you said, as far as finding out, figuring out what's happening, but then it, it seems to fall apart.
1: Yeah, until recently, there hasn't been a good human story. Money laundering seems like a a nebulous concept, right? um, But, you know, when you start getting down to things like human trafficking, people start to pay attention that, that, you know, money laundering doesn't seem to impact me day to day. But when we think about in B.C., the number of fentanyl deaths, when we think about um, the sex slavery that's happening, when we think about all of that's driven by criminal greed, Uh, these people looking for profit. We need to take the profit out of crime by detaining the profits from these funds and then that's where things are broken down is we, we need to um uh, there'll be more political will when there's more human interest in in the core of the money laundering problem which is the criminal greed
0: Which is is quite a bit. I mean, the fact that what you just mentioned and touched on as well, human trafficking, uh, the opioid crisis in B.C., let alone across the country and other places as well. I mean, if that's not enough for people to take a second look or to realize that they're so connected and that something needs to be done when it comes to money laundering, uh, you've got to wonder what what will it take?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely, Joe. I, I, the, the connection needs to be made to, um, between taking the profit out of crime and having safer neighbourhoods.
0: So do you think that a public inquiry would make any difference?
1: Yeah, I, I think there needs to be a bigger light shone on the issue. I mean, um, you know, the statistics that uh, Global has uncovered in terms of um, the, the lack of prosecutions, we need a public inquiry to shed light on the statistics. We need to, to hold the government accountable to... How, what the outcomes are from all this money and all the efforts that, that are being spent and, and the privacy that's being lost in, in the process. People are probably very used now to having their bank ask very detailed and invasive questions about their businesses and, and their their transactions. Um, all this is supposed to be towards um, reducing crime. And if we're not seeing it through to the end, then um, we're losing privacy rights and we're, we're spinning our wheels for no outcome.
0: Uh, There was a a rather large case um, that um, was in the news that we reported on uh, about to do with money laundering. Uh, That case fell apart. Uh, We then and this was another one of Sam Cooper's stories uh, he was able to find out. The reason for that was because a potential witness had been exposed or would have been exposed had the case gone forward. Uh, Does something like that kind of shake the credibility or leave people thinking, well, even in, in this huge case, this fell apart. So what's the point?
1: Yeah, that 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 was a really disappointing uh, outcome. You know, tons of resources were spent, and, and the fellows involved were, were clearly big players in in a monster scheme at, at play in in BC. And so, sure, I mean, um, it's incredibly frustrating. What we're looking to now is is for Canada's civil forfeiture system to kick in. So um, the criminal system is really hard because the Supreme Court gives prosecutors only eighteen months to go after um, a money laundering charge, and money laundering is complicated. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's disappointing. There needs to be better resources. There needs to be more focus on, on civil forfeiture.
0: And when we talk about the casinos, and so much focus has been on casinos, uh, from what I understand, with the changes to the the rules and pe- what, what people can do walking into kind of that the the video that we had seen and the stories that we'd heard of bags of money going through casinos, uh, from what I'm told now, with the new rules, and certainly there was the high-profile case uh, of Drake saying that he, he couldn't uh, – uh, gamble at the casino in downtown vancouver um i'm led to believe that they're they're losing a lot of money it's not nearly as lucrative as it was in the past because of these new rules uh, do you think is that would that make a difference or is that making a difference when it comes to money laundering
1: well um listen i think they did drake a little bit of a favor but it, <laughs> it, it is it is making um it is making a difference uh, in in terms of um the extent of the rules and the deterrence effect but you know uh Money laundering—it it, the dirty money flows through the path of least resistance. So as we put up little roadblocks in casinos, you know, they find other ways. And um, Canada is is notorious around the world now for snow washing. That you know, it's become so easy to launder money through our economy because of our um, because of how uh, our corporations can be so anonymous. Because of um, uh, that, there is no enforcement in in many jurisdictions in the country. That um, you know, it's it's not having. Uh, the impact on the prosecutions and, and, and the um, and, and the forfeitures.
0: Right, because you would think if, the, if, if money launderers know that the chances of being prosecuted are quite low, even if a casino puts up blockades, even it, if it becomes more difficult at a casino, could they not just go somewhere else or find a different way to do it?
1: Absolutely. Uh, use another casino. Um, use any number of the unregulated sectors in Canada. We still don't have regulations over finance and leasing companies. Um, not auction houses. There are plenty of methods available now to be able to launder money easily, um, uh, not just casinos.
0: So what would you like to see happen or what do you think if, if we have this huge breakdown of the system? We have we know what it's happening. Uh, we have the investigation side of it and that. But it doesn't lead to charges. It doesn't lead to convictions. What needs to change to make that happen?
1: Oh, you know, um, one of one of the one of the things is underway now, which is a dedicated RCMP force um, for money laundering, which we had in the past and haven't had for a while, um, and that's made a difference. We we need dedicated policing. We need dedicated training for our prosecutors. Um, we need dedicated training for our judges. And, and second, we need to put more emphasis on our civil means of being able to obtain funds. You know the. The civil courts are there and we have the tools in each of the provinces to be able to detain and forfeit funds in a civil court where we don't have the restrictions of, you know, 18 months to see a case through where um, we don't have beyond a reasonable doubt. where We can actually level the playing field and and that the the money that's seized from criminals is used in enforcement actions against them later. It's it's what our neighbors do to the south and um, it's been successful in many places in the world.
0: Right, because we do see that uh, from time to time, maybe not specifically with money laundering, but certainly with proceeds of crime, uh, with drug cases, uh, we do see civil forfe- forfeiture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there are um, some great uh, examples in the country uh, of, of civil forfeiture working. And, and that's what they're um, they're trying to do in the pirate investigation and, um, we're, all, um, we're all looking to make sure that that's successful. One of the problems is that they've raised a, a charter challenge already uh, against that case. And um, lots of people are watching with, with bated breath to see um, what that outcome is, because w- without that tool, it becomes nearly impossible to, to, um, to fight financial crime in this country.
0: All right. Well, Matt, we will leave it there, but thank you so much for your take on this and uh, coming from your point of view is certainly a perspective uh, that uh, that uh, you bring to the to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Bye. Well, uh, earlier on in the program, I played for you some of the comments of BC's chief coroner when she released the numbers of overdose deaths in this province. So She released those just a couple of days ago. It certainly has become a topic in various parts of BC. And in Victoria, one city councillor would like to see a supervised inhalation site set up. And we are joined on the line now by that city councillor. Sarah Potts is with us on the line. Uh, Good morning to you. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, What exactly uh, did you put forward at council as far as setting up a supervised injection, or sorry, inhalation site uh, in Victoria?
2: Well, um, so there is one safe inhalation site in Vancouver. The province is providing funding to the Overdose Prevention Society's work as a pilot program, and they're looking to the findings to to see where to go next. And uh, federally, a safe inhalation site has been approved for Lethbridge, and the City of Vancouver has also called on the province to expand supervised inhalation services as part of their 2023 recommendations from the Mayor's Emergency Overdose Task Force. So the goal of the resolution uh, sent in from Victoria is to support a continuum of harm reduction services already being provided by the province in relation to new understandings of what's needed to save lives in B.C., and calls on the province to deliver safe inhalation sites uh, to communities in crisis across B.C. So this motion is to go on, hopefully, to the union of B.C. municipalities um, for the 2019 general meeting agenda in the aims of demonstrating uh, province-wide support for these life-saving measures. Because, you know, it's been since 2016... Uh, that we've uh, our public health officer has declared a, declared a public health emergency, and you just have reviewed the numbers. You know, and there's more that we need to do in terms of this public health crisis. Uh,
0: so, any idea then at this point, so with this motion passing at Victoria Council, when a site like that might actually be set up in, in Victoria if it does go ahead? Um. No.
2: We have uh, not too sure of the next direction. We'll be looking to the province and to uh, frontline service providers to to be uh, to working on that, to be working on it. Again, this is um, this is calling on uh, province wide action. Of course, you know Victoria is also a community facing crisis, so we would like to see a site in Victoria. Um, we saw with the um, safe injection sites; those came online largely via social service providers. Um, in frontline uh, support, so we'll be uh, we'll be looking to those operators to see uh, see how they pr- uh, move on next steps.
0: And uh, have you done the work as well, or looked at the difference in setting up a supervised inhalation site as compared to perhaps a supervised a more general consumption site? In that, it, it mu- is it different as far as ventilation, and different as to what the site would physically look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's some. Uh, Their indoor operations, um, such as the Lethbridge site in Alberta, um, have sophisticatedly addressed the issues of ventilation. It can be a bit costly, but there are outdoor options, and that seems like the clearest path forward. That's what is happening at the overdose prevention site currently in Vancouver.
0: Uh, so what would stop in Victoria if it's a, if it's a health crisis as, as seen in many communities? So what would stop in Victoria just setting one up and declaring that it is an emergency and that an outdoor site, a tent or something is set up to do that?
2: I think uh, some in the field suggest that supervised injection sites are more palatable to the public than inhalation because of the emphasis on disease containment and keeping needles off the streets rather than straightforward, safer consumption. Um, And often people associate, uh, connect um, overdose with intravenous drug use, but it can happen with any mode of consumption And smoking or inhalation is the second most common mode of consumption among all people who have died from suspected illicit drug overdoses and the most common mode of consumption among men. And those younger, more vulnerable users between the ages of 15 and 29. Um, So it's certainly something that we, we have to look at.
0: And what about the the idea of treatment as well? Are are there enough services? Do you think in Victoria for treatment uh, for people to to uh, to get to get off of the drugs and to 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 get past that?
2: We absolutely need more detox uh, recovery treatment options. Um, these so harm reductions as, such as a safe consumption site go well beyond creating safe places to use drugs more safely. They play a vital role as a part of a larger public health approach to drug policy, providing access to services like counselling, healthcare, and treatment, and ultimately creating conditions and communities that can support people to break ties with their addiction, moving away from the stigmatization, marginalization and isolation, which fuels problem- problematic substance abuse. Um, importantly, these harm reduction measures are intended to complement and not replace existing prevention, arm reduction, and treatment interventions. And absolutely, we need more of these options. This is not, this angle is not a silver bullet. This is one of many ways that we need to be looking at addressing this issue. But we know that when you build that community and that connection, that is when you're most likely going to get that breakthrough, that that person is going to uh, access services like treatment. Because, again, addiction is a, a chronic relapsing illness. Uh, that requires medical attention.
0: And um, what kind of a response, uh, I know the the motion passed at, at the council level, what kind of a response uh, have you had to this so far?
2: I personally have only had positive responses, um, speaking to frontline workers, uh, healthcare providers, those with lived experience, um, and uh, community members. So uh, I feel really proud of our community that that is, so far is uh, the response i've received
0: all right and as you said so it will go to the ubcm uh, are there any other measures or any other moves uh, f- to to try and make this happen happening in the meantime
2: um currently we're just uh, uh, i've been in contact with a few other municipalities to see where they're at in terms of uh, uh their support and uh, so we're just uh, uh Just waiting uh, for that. In the interim, it will first go to the Association of Vancouver Island Coastal Communities. So that will be the first step to uh, see it pass on the South Island.
0: All right. Uh, We will leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate uh, your time on this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, later on today, the Prime Minister is going to be here in BC. He is taking part in a Lunar New Year celebration. We know that he will be joined by some other members of the Liberal Party. What is unclear at this point, though, is if Jody Wilson-Raybould will be on hand as well. And as you've been following along, I'm sure, with what's happening in regards to the SNC-Lavalin case, what was said, what wasn't said, and when we might find out more about it uh, is still a question Uh, one question that is being asked is whether or not there will be an investigation and the group democracy watch is calling on the ethics commissioner to ensure there's an investigation into whether or not there was uh, an attempt to influence the attorney general's decision about snc lavalin let's bring in uh, duff conacher with uh, democracy watch to talk a little bit more about why this call is being made duff good morning to you Good morning. Uh, you're calling for uh, the ethics commissioner to uh, to make sure there is an investigation. Uh, what what is behind uh, that call?
3: Uh, what's behind that call is that the uh, federal conflict of interest act, which is the ethics law that applies to the prime minister and and cabinet ministers and top government officials, has a rule in it, section nine, that says that you can't use your position to try to influence another person's decision. Uh, if you are trying to further your own interests, your family's interests, or improperly further another person or businesses, or organization's interests. And Democracy Watch's position is, as many people have said, it's improper for anyone to try to influence the Attorney General's decision about intervening and stopping a prosecution. In this case, the prosecution of uh, the big company, SNC-Lavalin. <laughs>
0: Uh, do you think that would help us uh, figure out a bit more? I mean, at this point, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould has said uh, she can't say anything because of uh, confidentiality. Uh, do you think that would get us to a point where we would know for sure what was said or perhaps what wasn't said?
3: Uh, yes, she could clear it up. And uh, she's saying that it's covered by solicitor and client privilege. Um, obviously, the the new... Uh, Attorney General David Lametti disagrees because he has said very clearly, no one's contacted me uh, from the PMO about the case and the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. He's also said no one contacted Jody Wilson-Raybould about it. I'm not sure how he would know that, given that he's not her. Um, So how would he know that no one contacted her from the PMO? Um, He's repeating the Prime Minister's line, essentially, excuse me, not that there wasn't any contact, because what's come out just yesterday is that uh, the Prime Minister's office has confirmed that there was actually contact, but that it was proper contact and that there was no problem with it, um, because it's normal to discuss uh, prosecutions with the Attorney General. Uh, It's not normal hopefully because the attorney general is supposed to be completely independent of political considerations when deciding whether to step in and uh, intervene in a prosecution and just to clarify we the harper conservatives set up in 2006 a public prosecution service that is more independent from the cabinet than the attorney general is and the attorney general can step in and stop a prosecution or take it over, but has to do so in writing and publicly. Uh, otherwise, the Public <coughs> public Prosecution Service is supposed to be running prosecutions.
0: Right. Uh, she she could also, I mean, we could learn more about this if the the Prime Minister waived the solicitor-client privilege. I mean, he could take that step, couldn't he, of saying, you're free to talk, you're free to explain yourself, to explain uh, what happened and, and do that. But, uh, I mean, I'm doubtful that's going to happen.
3: Um, most people are doubtful. The, the government is saying we can't because the case is ongoing, the prosecution is ongoing. <clears throat> I don't think that's a valid excuse. They could waive it um, in a limited way just for her to answer this question. I don't think solic- solicitor-client privilege applies anyway, and, and many others have said the same thing, um, because this is not a case of uh, be- the Jody Wilson-Raybould being asked to disclose what advice that she gave to the government in terms of following the law. It's a case of the prime minister's office contacting her to try to influence a prosecution, not of someone in the government, but of uh, a company. And so that's not anything that's covered by a solicitor client. Her client is the government. And it's not about a case of the government's prosecution. It's about the prosecution of a company. So, Myself and many others don't believe solicitor-client privilege applies, and she should stop hiding behind it and answer the question. Was she pressured uh, in any way, or did anyone try to influence her decision, which was her decision was not to intervene and stop the prosecution? And uh, she can answer that question.
0: Uh, do you think the issue would it be the same uh, reasoning given then uh, calling on the the um, calling for an investigation, uh, the ethics commissioner to investigate? Could the same uh, defense not be put, or the same reason for that not to happen be put forward that because of the ongoing case involving SNC Lavalin, it would be un- it wouldn't be right to have this investigation going on at the same time?
3: No, because this investigation is not about SNC-Lavalin. It's about the actions of people in the Prime Minister's office and uh, what they said to uh, or communicated in some other way to uh, the former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould. And so it doesn't have anything to do with the prosecution. The prosecution is in the hands of the Public Prosecution Service. And the complaint also has nothing to do with them. Um, It has to do just with the Attorney General and the Prime Minister's office.
0: Have you had any response? No no,
3: no reason why I can't go ahead. If the RCMP starts investigating, because some have said this comes close, others have said it actually crosses the line into obstruction of justice, which is a violation of the criminal code. If the RCMP started to investigate uh, and let the ethics commissioner know that they were investigating, then the ethics commissioner does have to stop the investigation because um, that's right in the law that governs the ethics commissioner. And wait until the RCMP has finished its investigation and any prosecution that might result before continuing to uh, investigate. Um, the big issue with the ethics commissioner and with this whole situation overall is the lack of a f- really fully independent watchdog for investigating these kinds of situations. Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion was handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet after a very secretive process in which they did not consult with the opposition parties what they did was they sent the opposition parties uh, at the end of November 2017 Mario Dion's name after a selection committee that made up of people completely controlled by the cabinet had chosen him and they said uh, here you go opposition parties you have one week to tell us what you think about Mario Dion but made it very clear that they were going to appoint him no matter what the opposition party said and that's dictation not consultation and it's very important to have fully independent people in these positions. They were supposed to consult with opposition parties so that the person chosen would not have the taint of partisanship, but instead the Trudeau cabinet handpicked this guy. So there's an appearance of bias on his part, and that's why Democracy Watch has called on the ethics commissioner to delegate the investigation to a provincial ethics commissioner who has no ties to any federal party.
0: And have you had any response since sending that letter to, uh, to the federal uh, ethics commissioner?
3: Uh, no, it was just sent on Friday morning, and, uh, other than acknowledging receipt of it. Um, and then NDP MPs uh, uh, Charlie Angus and Nathan Cullen filed a letter as well, uh, and the commissioner is now required to investigate. Uh, hopefully he'll do the right thing, realizing that we really need everyone to feel that the investigation is not tainted at all by even the appearance, even the hint of bias, and pass it on to someone who has not been handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet through a secretive process that the cabinet controlled. And that means not him. Pass it on to a provincial ethics commissioner, uh, and uh, that person, you know, someone who everyone would view as fully independent from all the federal parties and the federal cabinet.
0: All right, we will leave it there. But Duff, thank you so much for joining us and talking a bit more about this today.
3: My pleasure. I'll keep you updated as things develop.
0: (laughs) Okay, please do. It is a very special day today. The 53rd Annual Variety Show of Hearts Telethon is taking place. It will air live on Global BC as well as on BC1. It's also going to be streamed, live streamed on globalnews.ca. It's happening today from 9.30 to 5.30. It's happening at the Molson Canadian Theatre at the Hard Rock Casino Vancouver. And joining us to talk a little bit more about what is going to be happening today is Howard Blank, Variety Board Chair. Howard, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to talk about this.
4: Good morning, Jill. Great great to be on your show.
0: Great to, to be doing this so once again, uh, as I just said, the 53rd Annual Telethon. So what is going to be happening today?
4: Well, you know, it's a celebration of children and the families and those that have overcome special needs and who have been helped by Variety and through Variety and it's our annual major fundraising drive. Uh, we have Variety Week in the fall, and then, of course, it culminates with the telethon today. And uh, what we have is a number of stars, your favorite global and chorus personalities. Uh, Linda Steele from CKNW is going to be on today. And uh, we have Karen Kunkun from uh, Fox, and and those folks that people are used to listening on the radio. And, of course, Chris Gayless and the entire team and Squire and everyone from Global. But we also have some amazing live acts including Wally Shaw, and uh, if you're a Star Trek fan, George Takei will be here. Uh, he is in town shooting a uh, miniseries, and he's coming uh, to be part of the telethon, and it's all raising funds for children with special needs and their families.
0: Yeah, and I saw uh, Dana G, Dana G uh, was uh, tweeting earlier this morning that to give her a call and to make a donation, and I know she was hanging out with George Takei uh, earlier this, uh, this past week, just a few days ago. So a lot of people uh, have worked very hard to bring this all together.
4: Yeah, there's over 3,000 volunteers that, that are behind the scenes either today or through the year to make this happen. Uh, it is, uh, you know, Variety's single bing- biggest one day fundraising initiative. And it's great because for 53 years we've been doing this. And this year, something really special I want to mention, Jill, is that we're opening up the theater to families. Uh, anyone is welcome to come down, obviously subject to capacity, but we are going old school, like when I was a kid at the Queenie. Uh, you can come down, you can watch it live, you can see the stars and interact with them and the families and the children and really make it a special day. So we encourage everyone, it's cold out there, but at least the The driving conditions are good, and you can park here. It's free at at the Hard Rock in Coquitlam. And come on in the theater and celebrate with us.
0: Well, that was my next question, if if people can come and take part in that, which is great. I'm sure a lot of people will. Now, if people can't physically come, though, they can watch it, as I mentioned. How do people get involved, though, as far as donations and and making a donation?
4: Yeah, well, there's three ways. Uh, You can text the word KIDS. Uh, to 45678 on any phone, and a $20 donation goes, which is really easy and painless. Um, you can phone 310 kids, no prefix required anywhere within the province, and we have hundreds of phone volunteers here standing by that will start uh, just after 9 a.m., and we'll go past telethon, so you can do that. And also, you can go online, um, variety.bc.ca, and you can click to donate. And this year, we have a number of cool items back up for grabs. Um, the Robert Bateman is available for 169 donation, dollar donation. We have a variety thermal insulated grocery bag. If you become a monthly donor, you've got something cool to use when you're going to the grocery store. And of course, you can purchase uh, your name on a Sunshine Coach, which is amazing for $1,047. And we're going to have a special surprise coach announcement today during the show. So, Some really cool things that are going to be happening.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And talk a little bit, if you can, about the need. Because every year we do, we profile some of the people who are recipients who are helped by this. uh, But it seems like the need does grow as well. And uh, talk a little bit, if you can, about who this helps.
4: Definitely. And what's unique with Variety is, you know, um, many um, charitable organizations uh, serve people, you know, whether you go to the hospital or, or you, you know, you have a birth and people want to give back and thank the wonderful doctors and nurses. And it's wonderful, the organizations that, that do that. Our, uh, our sort of Achilles heel is we help those who can't help us back. And so, therefore, it, we want to share our message. And we don't really build anything specific uh, in terms of you know a research center, et cetera. However, we donate millions of dollars. Whether it's uh, the Pacific Autism Center, whether it is um, Children's Hospital or BC Women's Hospital, or up north, uh, Spirit of the North Healthcare Systems, et cetera. So, when you give, um, you can give in a number of ways, and the money can go directly to individual grants. So, imagine if you have a child that is uh, sick and requires immediate attention, have to be flown into Vancouver from you know somewhere way up north well, we'll cover the, uh, the expenses for a family that cannot afford to do that. And, you know, they pick up their lives, obviously, for their child. And the average individual grant is about $2,500. So, and we're doing thousands a year for, for children and their families. So it really adds up. Um, other ideas, for instance, if you need a child with physiotherapy, just one year's cost of that over and above what is covered is $3,000. So, you know, when you think we have an amazing healthcare system, not everything is covered. If you need equipment, a wheelchair, a walker, those are not given free as part of the system. Uh, and if you can't afford it, Variety steps into health.
0: And it, it is pretty amazing too, and, and we talk about the fact that it's this telethon, and in so many other uh, cases, telethons have kind of gone away, or they're certainly not as as popular, there, there aren't as many of sure. them as there used to be, but there's something about the variety, uh, the Show of Hearts telethon, that just it seems to have such staying power.
4: Well, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. When I was uh, 12 years old, uh, the, the Barnett family that we all know, uh, one of the founders of Variety, and they had, you know, the Elephant and Castle pubs and, and uh, Pizza Patio, a number of famous restaurants in the day. Um, the, his wife was being taught by my dad at UBC, and my dad said, you know, I've got a son who loves entertainment. Could he come out? And instead of saying, you know, come on in the audience, he'll have fun, he actually puts me on the side of the stage, and I'm a runner, And I do that for a number of years, and then what becomes my profession? Show business, you know, and it truly gave me something that I'll cherish forever, so by being and now I can give back to Variety and so many people have been touched and I think that's that's the key about this event. People's lives are touched those who need Variety's help but also those who want to give. It's a wonderful family and you know we are an open organization people are welcome to join Variety and again if you go variety.bc.ca we have a members club and we have events both internally and externally throughout the year. A uh, Boat for Hope is an amazing event. I know you've covered that before Jill where we go out with kids with special disabilities get to go on to sailing ships and be pirates for the day and have fun and be kids and and those are important things just as much as buying equipment or receiving physiotherapy or wheelchairs etc
0: indeed it is all right i will let you go howard because i know it's a very very busy day for you but thanks so much for joining us and have a great day down there
4: well thank you Jill, and appreciate all your listeners today 310 kids 310 kids to call in. Please change the life of a child with special needs. Have a great day.
0: We are going to shift gears and talk a little bit about what is happening in Venezuela and uh, the fallout from that. And uh, let's bring in David Mosscrop now. He is on the line with us. He's a writer for McLean's, columnist at The Washington Post, and is on the phone. David, thanks so much for being with us this morning. No pleasure. Uh, we could talk about any number of things uh, regarding Venezuela, but uh, want to touch on what was a bit of a bizarre exchange, or a, perhaps a bizarre non-answer to a question uh, when the question was put to the federal leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, about the leader. Uh, what do you take? What, what's your takeaway from how he responded to that question?
5: I mean, my initial sense is that there must be some sort of deeper disagreement inside the party about what to do, whether to. To back um, the, the Maduro um, because they distrust American imperialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, or to suggest okay, well that he stole the election. We don't trust him, and we back the new guy. And um, you know, and that's, that that rift seems to be evident there, especially since you've got the leader saying one thing and the foreign affairs critic saying another.
0: And so, and, and to back up a bit, in case people hadn't uh, heard what he said, so this happened on in B- in BC. He was uh, doing a, it was a campaign stop in BC. He was asked the question about who he recognizes as the interim president, and that ca- so Canada had already come out as a our government had already come out saying that they recognize Juan Guaido, they recognize the new interim president. Uh, his response, though, was any decision about the future of Venezuela should be in the hands of the Venezuelan people. Uh, d- did that seem like a big disconnect to you, that, that while Canada had recognized this, um, members of the NDP had recognized this, he didn't?
5: Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying that the future should be decided by the people of Venezuela. I think most people would agree. The question is that he didn't seem to have a good answer to which of the two do you think is the president or ought to be the president, um, which is the challenge. And if you're going to lead the country, you're going to have to have an answer to that question. And, and he didn't. Um, so there is a disconnect, I think, to some extent, there, um, but you know it, there is a legitimate critique there to be made. Um, but it's not clear to me that a thing has enough control of of the party on this uh, to make it clearly and confidently. And that could also represent not just tensions in the caucus and in the party, but tensions with supporters. You know, there are probably a lot of folks Canadians who would, I think, on balance, support uh, a change in government, but perhaps the grassroots NDP. Uh, folks less likely to support that. So that that's an old NDP challenge, trying to stay relevant in the mainstream but while you know keeping the base appeased.
0: Right, and, and and so what would have happened then? Had he come out, even if he came out with a different opinion uh, than other members of the NDP, uh, do you think that would have been a better way to deal with this rather than than not really answer the question?
5: Well, look, I, I think ninety nine out of a hundred times, it's it's better to um if you're whatever position you're going to take, take it firmly and clearly, because if not, you end up being labeled a waffler. And he's had problems for the better part of a year looking like he's comfortable in the role, looking like he's got control of the caucus, looking like he knows the score. So this doesn't help that. It just plays into the, the narrative that he's out of his depth and he has no idea what he's doing. So he would have been better off to come out with a clear, uh, definitive statement from start and stick to it. Uh, rather than, than flopping about like he has, because you're never going to please everybody. At some point, you've got to pick a lane. And I think fair, fair, you know, fairly often, at least, people will, will give you the benefit of the doubt or at least respect you for sticking to your guns rather than, uh, than going back and forth. So I think it would have been better off to take... There is an op- a different position you could have taken, which is um, we support... The, the, quite a, for now, but we want elections immediately. Right. That's that's a position that, that the EU, for instance, has taken. Um, that would have been a good compromise, but
0: and when you when you talk about kind of maybe this uh, with the, looking at uh, members of his party uh, does this play into more of the the idea that's being floated around that that there there are members within that party who do not want him to be the leader anymore who are waiting uh, to see what happens in the by election and even though he's said that he will remain leader even if he doesn't win the by election uh, that choice wouldn't be up to him
5: well, no, and and there's you know been indications that if he loses, he's done for. Um, that that's the tension, and of course he has to say he's sticking around no matter what, though. Right? <laughs> he could very well lose and say, okay, never mind, I'm out. I've listened to the party, I've listened to people, they want me to go, and I'm going to move on. But he has to, in the meantime, say he's he's going to fight he's going to win, and the NDP is going to go on to form government, it's going to be glorious. That's what you've got to say. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's not just that there's some tensions. There are MPs who are not running again, we've been told, right? And fairly serious. Well, we know some of them already. Sheila Malcolmson, for instance, who's now elected in in Nanaimo. Um, But but a handful of other senior MPs who might not be back. Um, That is a a pretty, uh, I think, serious problem for him because you lose a lot of your bench strength. And it's not exactly a vote of confidence in your leadership if people want to shuffle on.
0: Right. And uh, I mean, the by-election is coming up. It's uh, what, about two weeks away at this point. Uh, how much do you think are people just kind of waiting for that to happen? And, and and how will things change following that? I mean, obviously, it will depend on the results. But how do you think things will change in that party?
5: Well, I mean, I think if he wins, and and I certainly hope he does, I think he ought to be given a chance to develop as a leader. I think he ought to be given a chance to fight the election. Uh, I think he ought to be given even a little more of the benefit of the doubt. Keep in mind, Justin Trudeau in uh, 2012, 2013, wasn't much to write home about. Um, You know, three years in, he got good at it. He got the hang of things. He got good staff, and he won, formed government. So I think Singh ought to be given the chance. But if he loses, I think that's it, Um, and they'll they'll probably change tack and find a different way forward. If he wins, it gives him a bit of reprieve to, to try to get it right, um and and but now the bar is low i think part of the problem with him is the bar was really high after the leadership because he had been billed as the second coming and so he was the answer to justin trudeau he was the fix he was going to bring the ndp to greatness and then he stumbled over the course of a year so the expectations are really high they've Moderated, <laughs> they've come back down to earth in a big way. Um, so I think if he can, if he can fight the twenty nineteen election and, and end up with roughly the same number of seats or even a couple more, um, he'll be back on track. Uh,
0: do you, I heard someone make an interesting uh, um, an interesting kind of uh, take on this, and I don't know if if. if you can buy into this or not, but his take was that he felt that when Jack Layton brought the party, when we had the Orange Crush and we had this overwhelming surge for the NDP, uh, he was able to do that by by reaching out to kind of touching uh, on the various splinter groups, on the various causes or beliefs and, and bringing people together. And that by doing that, though, we now have this party that, that has a, a lot of different, uh, or perhaps disagreements within it. And that by doing that, he's actually he actually brought them all together. And so now it's almost more difficult to keep it unified.
5: The left is, you know, no matter where you are, the left is a hard group to keep unified. The left splinters uh, very, very easily. And the NDP has a a number of splinters, including the sort of champagne socialist, urban new left and the sort of old um, working class uh, blue collar union left. Right. And you see divisions among those folks all the time. That's a big one. And then there are lots of others around identity, for instance. Um, So there there are huge challenges there with that. Um, But I think the story of the NDP becoming more popular under late minimal care is actually the story of the liberals being pretty bad at the time and the NDP moving towards the center and and, and trying to to unify around the sort of centrist uh, push, which, you know, irritated a lot of their leftist um, core because they thought, well, we don't need liberal light. We want a proper social democracy party or 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 a socialist proper party and they weren't seeing it from the ndp so i i do think you know that that move to the center if the liberals are strong is useless for the ndp because why why would you want um you know a pale imitation when you can have the real thing if you're a liberal supporter right yeah or sort of center left and i think that's the big challenge for them is finding their identity and finding their purpose when the liberals are strong
0: Indeed. Uh, One more thing about about, uh, Jagmeet Singh's leadership, and we touched on this. So the kind of the the Strange response when asked about who he believes is the president of Venezuela. Um, that comes not too, too long after uh, he was speaking with Evan Solomon when uh, there was a uh, the bit of the confusion when he asked him about uh, comments made by, by an ambassador. Uh, do we focus too much on, on a leader when he stumbles? Or do you think that those responses, are they going to hurt his chances of winning that by-election?
3: I,
5: I still think his chances are fine. Um, you know, I, I it's, it's more or less an NDP riding. It was, it was close the, the last go-round, but I do think um, by-elections tend to favor outside government. Um, Singh's high profile, uh, that folks will be motivated to, to win so that he sticks around if, if you want the NDP to have a shot. I, I think he'll be fine. Um, I do think sometimes we focus a little too much on stumbles, a little too much on gotcha moments, but this is a pattern. This isn't like the first time Singh has had a problem looking like he was tuned out, right? There was a press conference not long ago in the House of Commons Sawyer, uh, where he had to look to Guy Caron to check a party policy because he didn't know it. Mm. That's a problem. And, and I think that that's substantive. That's not a gotcha moment. This guy's got to know the book inside and out. And if it looks like he's dialed out time after time after time, then that becomes a story. That's, that's not gotcha. So I think it's fair game.
0: All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. Always great to, to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, for talking about this this morning.
5: My pleasure. Anytime.